All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How are you holding up? Forecast for today. Clouds of virus raining down on most of the United States. Jesus fuck. My God, man. What a nation of dumb shits. Tremendous. Let it, let it rip. Let it burn. It's literally in your, you're soaking in it. What a nation of dumb shits. And look, you know, plenty of smart people are dumb shits. I don't know what it is. Things get slacked. Things are inconvenienced. Plague fatigue is a real thing. We just want it to be done. People get sloppy and then people get sick and people die. And, you know, I'm not and I'm guilty of it. I'm not coming from some higher plane here. Today on the show, I talked to John Densmore. He was a door. He was the drummer for the doors. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, written a couple books about his time in the doors. He's got a new book out called The Seekers, which is about the artists who inspired him. He's also taken a stand against commercialism and has prevented the doors music from being used to sell products. We'll talk about that a bit. Uh, I know, uh, the remaining door is not thrilled about that, but, uh, but noted, you don't, you don't hear that much anymore. They, yeah. The people have integrated, adapted, assimilated into commercialism and somehow justifying it. Is there any selling out anymore? If you do it in a cool way, I mean, that's been the way it's at for a while. Now we're in this new shift. It's like, it's not so much about doing whatever it takes to, uh, to, to make a buck or sell a product as long as you keep your shit together and look cool doing it. Now it's literally about, you know, managing your brand, managing your own product, getting out there. Yeah, right. Selling you and then having the people come to you so you can sell their shit. Hey, man, will you sip on this while you talk to your fans? Hey, man, will you wear this while you talk to your fans? Hey, man, could you sing this tune while you talk to your fans? Look at this. Could you rub this on your face while people are enjoying you talking? Could you eat four of these at the same time you rub this shit on your face while people are talking? Make it a show. Make it a show called I'm eating four things and rubbing shit on my face for a half hour. Brought to you by the shit on the face people. Yeah, man. There's no selling out anymore. What is going on? The movie that I'm in, Stardust, uh, the David Bowie film I did with Johnny Flynn, is getting, you know, I would say mixed reviews, but uh, my mother hasn't watched it. Apparently because um, she set out to watch it the other night and she goes, I don't think I watched the right one. I don't think I, I was, it was, what do you mean? Was I in it? She's like, I didn't see you. What was it at the beginning when they were a bunch of British, uh, you know, seventies people dressed like that. And she's like, no, it, it seemed to be like another time, like a primitive time, like a hundred years ago or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I watched for like 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't see you in it. What are you watching? Stardust. Is there another Stardust? I guess there is. There is another Stardust, apparently. And my mother watched a nice portion of it before she realized <laughs> it wasn't about David Bowie. It's some sort of weird fantasy movie from like 10, 15 years ago. I don't even know what it's about, but it took her 10, 15 minutes before she's like, this doesn't seem right. 
And she's got all her marbles, my mother. But she waited it out. Maybe this was some artful approach to the uh, to the David Bowie story that starts off 100 years ago. They were going way back. <laughs> oh, God. I think I got her on the right track. I don't understand. I, I, I watched the movie. You're not in it. It was like uh, from it was like the old days. I don't what I, I don't know. What is that? Am I watching the wrong movie? Yes. Yes. I wish my dad a happy birthday. I left him a message. I didn't talk to him. He's 82. I think he's okay. My biggest problem right now, aside from fearing COVID, I've decided, as I will, given that my primary relationship at this point in time is a black cat named Buster Kitten. Fucking Buster. So... I've done this with all my cats at different points. Like, he's acting weird. He's acting tweaky. I thought it was the full moon. Maybe there's a mouse in the house. Maybe there's a rat in the basement. Who the fuck knows with a cat? But I know he's acting weird, so I start focusing in, hyper-focusing on him. Buster, what's up? Buster, what's up? Are you okay, Buster? What are you doing there? Why are you sitting there? Where are you going, Buster? What's going on? That's not your regular place. Is that your new place? Do you not feel well? Why are you sitting like that? What's happening, Buster? And, you know, the cat's going to feel that. I mean, me just saying that to you guys made me a little stressed. And I don't know how I forget. I've been dealing with cats for almost 20 years of my own. I've been through a few. I've taken a lot of them. Like I, yeah, I took, I, fuck it, man. It's like, you don't know what cats. It's like, you know, one day they're, that, that's their place. Look, that's your place. I like that. You're going to, you're going to sit up there on the couch. That's your place, Buster. That's your place. How come you're not in that place anymore? Is this your new place? Are you going to be on this side of the couch now or the other chair? Why are you going to, oh, you're going to ruin that piece of furniture. And then you just stop after a few months and move on to another piece of furniture. Where are you? Where, oh, you're going to stay upstairs now. What? You're going to sleep on the table. What's going on? Is this your new toy? Is this where you're going to stay? They switch it up. Are oh, you shitting on this rug now? Why is that? Why did that happen for a month? You don't fucking know. You don't know what's going on with them or how they make decisions. But they change. They do weird shit. They're fucking cats. I don't know why I forget that. But I'm like, I got to take him to the vet. I think he's breathing funny. Something wrong with him. I got to take him in. I haven't been to the vet since I left with an empty crate. With monkey. Since I sent monkey off. So I took uh, took Buster in to see Modesto over at um, Gateway. I've been going to Gateway Animal Hospital in Atwater here in L.A. for like 20 years, 18 at least. Used to take Boomer there, LaFonda Monkey for their entire lives. I've taken ferals there that I trapped to get fixed. I've taken uh, a stray there to be put down. But Doc Modesto is the best. So I took Buster in because you guys, I don't know if you know, you know, Buster almost died when he was like two. He ate something stupid. I don't know, I'm not even sure what, but he went into full renal failure. He went fucking down. I had to like get him to an emergency vet. He was under observation for days, fluids, ultrasounds. He survived it and got perfect kidney function at the end of it. But I haven't had him checked out in two years. So I, there's a little bit of denial. That's how you know why people are selfish and stupid. We all do the denial of the trip. No one wants fucking bad news. And no one wants to be dis- inconvenienced. I understand. But it doesn't mean you're avoiding fucking reality. That's what it means. 
So the initial tests are okay. The test he took yesterday, I brought him in. His teeth are dirty. He's a little chubby. But the ultrasound does reveal he's probably working with one big kidney. And the smaller one might not be working at all. He might have a, a bum kidney in there and one big good one. But Doc Modesto's like, hey, man, just like people, these cats can live for a long time at one kidney. He's been on the kidney food for a long time. Keep him on that. I'm even ready. I'm ready to snap into sub-Q fluids if I have to. I could give him sub-Q fluids just, just for fun. I got the shit over here. I've run a cat hospice before. Buster Kitten. He's acting weird, though, man. Buster is acting tweaked. He might be just getting older. It seems to, I don't know. He's acting like there's something out there. He's acting like there's another animal either in the house or near the house. Something's going on. A lot of smelling going on. A lot of like, uh, I know there's something right around here. It's right around here. Something's going on, man. And I'm going to sweep upstairs now. But aren't you a downstairs cat? Nope. This is where it's at now. This is what's happening. Deal with it, fucker. I'm obviously projecting a lot. So look, you guys. uh, John Densmore is a a drummer. He was a door. (laughs) His new book is called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists. You can get it wherever you get books. He writes about my interview with Gary Shandling in the book, actually, as an example of people searching for truth and transcendence through their art. And we talk about that a bit. Uh, This is me talking to the drummer of the doors, John Densmore. So, John, how you feeling, buddy? I got something I want to say. What? What the fuck, Mark? <laughs> exactly. What the fuck? I, I got no answer for you. I got no answer for you, John. Can, can, can we get Agent Orange to step down so I can sign some books? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, I, I don't know if we're ever going to get him out of that fucking White House. Someone's going to have to go in and get him. Boy, does he suck all the air out of a room or what? Out of the world. But like when you think back on, you know, your life, I mean, you you know, during the the late 60s, I mean, what was the feeling around, you know, the chaos that that Nixon was creating? Was it was it you were a younger man, but did you feel it as menacing or was it better or worse? It's the same, although, you know, every night was uh, horrendous napalming and, and and so maybe that was worse but um i don't know I, my hatred of donald is amazing i mean bush you know I, I, yeah. yeah but uh i said to a friend of mine the other day well thank god donald hasn't started a war and my friend said he did the civil war I went, oh right 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 <laughs> yeah. so so maybe yeah trump is the vietnam war which was a catalyst difficult as it was and you know as horrendous as all of this is now um we did stop that war the people stopped that war and so i'm hoping praying that we're just finally maybe going around the corner a little bit towards light and mm-hmm. there'll be some light for 10 years i hope i hope so too and th- where are you at you in la still um yeah i'm in santa monica where i was born 
and my mom was born here in 1904, but we're not native. No? Chumash Indians are the natives, first people. Where are you, Where's your people from? Uh, Ireland. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But you've been in Los Angeles for the whole time. You've seen the whole, you know, rise and fall and rise and fall again of uh, of Los Angeles. I mean, I can't like I can't even imagine what when I see pictures of Los Angeles from the 60s and 70s, it just looked fucking nuts. I just got into town about an hour ago. Yeah. Yeah. Look around, see which way the wind blows. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. But where were you in New York? No, I grew up in Albuquerque. You know, I was, you know, I'm younger. I'm 57 and I, you know, I was born in Jersey, but most of a, I mostly grew up in Albuquerque. Yeah. I got a weird question. It's not really a trivia question, but it's just like I recounted a story that I read uh, in an oral history of punk rock uh, that Iggy Pop told uh, in how the doors inspired him to, to sort of be who he is. And it was based on a show that you guys did. It must have been Ann Arbor or Detroit where Iggy went to see you guys and Jim did the entire uh, show like singing the songs like Mickey Mouse or in a weird voice and he wouldn't stop it. And the audience was getting furious and they were fucking like just mad as hell and he would not stop doing it. And Iggy thought it was the most amazing thing he'd ever see. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I'm sorry, Mark. My brain cells are not clicking on that one. <laughs> so, it, it, so it was that crazy to where something like that wouldn't stand out. <laughs> well, that the whole show, uh, maybe a few uh, minutes. Yeah, right? maybe maybe his memory's off a little bit. Maybe he a little a poetic license. Uh, sure. So let's talk about this. Like the drive to to find truth and and the the sort of idea of what art is supposed to do seems to be something that you know you've always been obsessed with did you did you notice i quoted you doing yeah i saw that during, during shanling interview yeah exactly but like yeah. when you were like you know i like you know the way you start is that you grew up in a creative house to a certain degree huh yeah you know and Okay, I got this idea. I would uh, do a tip of the hat to various musical icons who, right. who inspired me. And so I wrote a few chapters. And then I thought, oh, you know, my mom, she encouraged piano and drums. So I'll write a chapter on her. Then, and I, and I thought, oh, let's be autobiographical. I'll stick it at the beginning of the book. Then it hit me a few weeks ago. And, oh, wait a minute. In the chapter on Elvin Jones, Coltrane's drummer, I talk about how to drummers and everyone that the first drum beat you ever heard was your mother's heartbeat in the womb. Uh huh. You know? Yeah. And then I, well, of course she's the first chapter. I was in her womb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, what I found sort of compelling was this idea that, you know, that you know, she, she had some hardship in her life and some loss early on. Oh yeah, and yeah. and that you know creative creativity that the the sort of she was driven to paint and draw, to sort of manage the grief. Oh man, that's good. I don't know if I implied that, but that helps me. Yeah, I, that's why she painted till ninety four. She channeled it, and that's what the book is sort of about. You know, whether you're a professional musician or 
uh, playing your piano in the closet and nobody hears it, you're still getting in this zone that, that sort of feeds you and heals you. Well, when did you know for yourself? I mean, like when you were a kid and you were you were because uh, you also do a chapter with with a, a, a teacher of yours, uh, Fred Katz. Right. Yeah. And but uh, but when you were a kid, I mean, did you want to be an artist or did you want to just be a, a rock and roller? Because, you know, the girls liked it. <laughs> uh, no, I I fell in love with music at eight years old, playing the piano. And then I played in the all the bands in school and all that. But I never thought I would make a living at it. It's such right. a crapshoot, right? Right, you yeah, know? yeah. So that's why when I went to college, I majored in accounting, you know, money, accounting. Sure. And, and then I got D's and went, oh, okay, maybe I should major in something I like. Yeah. You know, music. But then I dropped out. Right. And then what happened? And then I got, I got in this band and uh, I prayed that it would pay the rent 10 years and... Uh, I'm 76 in a week, and I'm still talking about this fucking band. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it happens with the guys that survive. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you make yeah. that much of a cultural impact. You, you're sort of, I guess it's sort of an albatross, but, but you know, there, there's got to be some pride in it still, right? Oh, to- totally. I mean, you know, in my, let's see, first book, I have three self-centered memoirs. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the nature of the form. <laughs> I argue with Ray because he's like kind of selling the doors like Willie Loman a little too much. And he's giving me shit saying, John, well, it's better to be in the doors than not. And yeah, I say, well, of course. Of course, Ray, I have of the doors permanently etched on my forehead and I'm very proud of it. But, you know, I, I also get divorced and have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> So. <laughs> you have a life. <laughs> so, but like when you guys started, I mean, when did you find, I guess in looking at the book and, you know, having not read your other books, when did you sort of know that you were going to, you know, that what you were doing was not mainstream. It was not, you know, necessarily designed to make hits, but you know, that you were on the path of an artist and not just a rock band. When did you start seeing it as art? Was it something that happened in the doors with with the with, when you guys started taking more creative risks well i mean you know we we always wanted to become as popular as po- possible possible but i guess in jim's lyrics were these this this searching of uh you know that i, I don't i was young i didn't understand it all really but it, it turned me on and i'm thinking about um you talking to G- gary and about truth is in the silence and, and the void and and yeah. addiction. You yeah. know, Gary goes on to say it's it's addiction if you can't sit quietly. It's pretty interesting stuff. Oh, addiction to distraction. Well, I mean, but you know, how did you got how did you survive? It seems that, you know, given that what you were surrounded with, that somehow, you know, watching Jim, you know, kind of self destruct, that somehow uh-huh. or another the other three of you you did all right. I you know, you it didn't seem like you guys uh went down the same path much. Well, that was a teaching. Jim was always going too far. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, uh, for years, would get asked the question, if Jim was around today, would be, he be clean and sober? And, and I always said, nah, he was a kamikaze drunk. And then a few years ago, wait, wait, hold it. I know a lot of really cool people 
uh, Clapton, Eminem. The, in, yeah, of course he would. It's a different time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he was an example, and I definitely uh, was more cautious. Certainly dabbled. But, yeah. Um, but you didn't. Road. You didn't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Not I, yet. In, in I order, still don't. Good. In order to, <laughs> to to know that you can break on through the other side, there's some party that's trying to get there, and uh, you don't know what that's going to require. So we assume that he's on the other side now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, but like it, it seems like this book that you kind of moved through. When did you first meet uh, you know Elvin Jones? Was he an influence on you when you were younger? Well, yeah, I, I as a teenager stumbled into Shelley's manhole in Hollywood. Well, I was a jazz maniac. Like the chapter on Ray, uh, our initiation was sharing the jazz mentors we loved, uh-huh. and so I was telling Ray I saw Coltrane many times. Where in L.A.? Elvin. Yeah. With Elvin, and uh, oh, I just, I didn't know I was seeing something that was really iconic, but I knew there was magic. I just knew it. When, how old were you when you were going to see them? Uh, 18 or something. We're down in downtown. Where was that? Where were they playing, the Coltrane guys? In Hollywood. Oh, yeah? I, I, I went to Tijuana and got my fake ID that uh-huh. said I was 21, and and the the door guy said uh no nah, it's fake but you can come in and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, I, it just fed me i couldn't believe this drumming it was so primal yeah and and, and a conversation with coltrane and right and i kind of got the idea to have a conversation with jim you know so but so you were but 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 so from early on you were kind of like your brain was able to lock into that kind of journey you know, it takes a certain type of mind to to lock into Coltrane and jazz in general. But you were sort of you were a freak for it early on. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm I'm a seeker. Uh, I I was I've been blessed with. Um, I mean, all these chapters I saw. Uh, I was in Jamaica before reggae came to the states. Yeah, and so I I, I got in there, and you know, I I saw Coltrane. Before he became giant. Do you and remember so, when Coltrane kind of started like going? Did, were you able to stay with him throughout the whole journey when he started getting yeah. really out there? You still dug it? Oh, oh yeah, most definitely. Because he, I knew his journey from bebop to uh, cool jazz with Miles yeah. to his own quartet. And then his own quartet went further out. So I, I was... I I'd go anywhere with him because yeah. you know. And did you you got to talk to Elvin Jones? Yeah, I I um I then saw him at Royce Hall, uh, and then I went up to the stage uh, because you know it's not like rock. Yeah. It wasn't a Berlin Wall. You right. could just go up there, and and I I just listened. Motherfucker! Answer it. <laughs> See, tell him to call you back. Hey, I'm doing an interview. Bye. I don't know who that was. Oh, well. <laughs> so I go on stage, and Elvin is taking the nails out that he hammered on the floor of Royce Hall to keep his bass drum from sliding. Oh, wow. Whoa. Uh, talk about strong. Yeah. And I'm, I'm afraid to talk to him. Yeah. But then years later, after Coltrane died, I see him in another club. And I bring in my first book, Riders on the Storm, 
real nervous that, you know, jazz is a higher art form and he'd be condescending. Yeah. And he'd never heard of the doors. Come on. <laughs> and, and, and I said, Elvin, in here, I wrote that you gave me my hands. And he was so gracious. And, and then by the end of his life, if he was in town, I'd bring his, carry his drums to the car. Oh, know? really? You'd go see him wherever he was and help him out? Yeah, yeah. It's a harder life, isn't it, jazz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you guys were kind of friends until he passed. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, mentors, that's what I'm writing about, you know? Sure, I get it. But, I mean, these guys, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the, at the time that the doors were around, there was sort of a crashing of, you know, there was a, a period there in the 70s, you know, in late 60s where you know, the generations were kind of mixing, you know, and you had the old timer rock and roll guys and you guys were yeah. the new wave. But you were kind of sometimes you would do shows together or be around. Right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when did you meet Jerry Lee Lewis? Oh, well, that was later. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, we got big enough. So we thought we had the power to dictate the second act. Uh huh. So we were playing the Hollywood Bowl and we said and this is before. Johnny Cash had a TV show. We said, well, Johnny Cash, uh, uh, I walked the line. And they said, we're not hiring a felon. Really? <laughs> I said, okay. And we couldn't do it. But then we played the forum and we got Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, it, you know, we were pleased to tip the hat to the early 50s rockers. When the Doors played the forum, you guys, he, you know, he was an opening act? He opened and... We, he had been playing country music and we warned him, you know, you gotta play some of your hits. And, yeah. And, and, you know, the audience was going, Jim, doors. Yeah. And he, he, you know, cantankerous, he, he got up on the piano at the uh -huh. end and he said, for those of you like me, God love you. For the rest of you, have a heart attack. <laughs> Did he play the hits though? Did he play them? He played them. You know, yeah. he played with his feet. He slammed the piano. Yeah. You know, and did you, cool. was he, was he nice to you guys? He was. I mean, you know, they showed up without any instruments, which was rather odd. <laughs> can, we, can we borrow your drums? <laughs> sure. Really? Uh, uh, and Robbie says, well, I got a lot of guitars. What kind do you want? Jerry Lee says, any old Rockaday Fender guitar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man, that's old school. Yeah. And he's still around too, man. He is. You know, he's 86 or so, like Willie. Willie Nelson is my closing chapter, and he's 86 or 7. Yeah. So this, these guys are teachers for me to how to do this thing, you know. Sure. And what was your, like, I have a weird, I had a weird encounter with Lou Reed, but it was just a fan encounter where, uh, you know, I had, uh, I went to get a record signed at a record store in Boston, and he was signing records. And I just really wanted to ask him like the right question. I knew I only had a second, you know, and I was and he can't tanker us. <laughs> well, yeah, but I didn't, I just was like, you know, I get up there and I'm like, Hey Lou, what gauge pick do you use? You know, like that was my big question. And, <laughs> and he said, medium, man, you got to use a medium. And I've, you know, I used a medium for a few years, but, but it's just, yeah, he was cantankerous, but he was, uh, Definitely definitive. Why did you choose to put him in? You really do you have a lot of respect for his journey as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, at first, I didn't get the uh, Velvet Underground. I no? saw them at the whiskey, and you know, I was a, a West Coast, uh, not a Beach Boy maniac, but you know, they were dark. And yeah. Nico was singing. Yeah. 
then I realized, oh, wow, there's some power here in what they're up to. And, and musicianship is, you know, sort of secondary. Yeah. And then he tuned his guitar, that ostrich sound, and, and hit the guitar like a percussion instrument. I went, oh, this is different. This, uh-huh. okay. There's some art to well, it. Really, really was fun. Uh, I met him just after he got back from Czechoslovakia, uh-huh. where Veslav Havel had him come over for an interview because he inspired uh, Havel's when he was in jail. Yeah. And, and uh, Lou was really, you know, high from that. Yeah. Was, I got high just hearing the story, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's interesting that you've been in L.A. for so long, but you didn't mention, uh, you know, the, the Zappa scene. Did you not know Frank? Yeah, we knew Frank. We used to go over to his house for jam sessions. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Over in Laurel Canyon on the yeah. Wilson, Wilson on Wilson. Yep, 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 yep. But did, what was it like over there at that house? Oh, it was cool. Yeah. Uh, we, we played the blues. We play, you know, we talked with Frank about. He was into avant-garde stuff, which we knew about. So you guys uh, would sit around and he'd play like his strange uh, Italian art composers and stuff and do his... Uh... Somewhat. He mainly watched everybody jam and took uh-huh. notes. Oh, really? Huh. <laughs> I mean, mental, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you guys, it seems to me that, you, you know, that, that whatever the sound of the doors was, I was talking about it this morning to somebody because I knew I had to talk to you, is that... You know, people are like, well, the Doors seemed like there was a simplicity to it. And I'm like, yeah, but like you can't. The thing about the Doors and what you guys did is that if you if you can hear one note of a song and know exactly who it is, you know, that that band is an authentic, real, you know, kind of uh, groundbreaking you know, bunch of people. Like, you know, they, I think the simplicity of it was sort of disarming that like, you know, given Jim's darkness and his showmanship played against the kind of almost jovial rhythm uh, of some of the tunes, it kind of had this interesting balance. Well, I never heard that comment, simplicity, but what I I think is uh, uh, what made us, uh, you know, when you, like Lou Reed, you need need to get enough technique to get across your uniqueness, whatever the hell it is. Sure. You know, classical musicians are the most technical of all time. Right. And they get a little stiff sometimes. Right. Although Gustavo Dudamel, who I write about, yeah. ULA, he he's totally aware of salsa and Led Zeppelin and, of and that's why he's so fluid. Right. You know, I, I go backstage after and he says to me, Juan, uh, Gustav Mahler is heavy metal. Yeah, I can see <laughs> that. And he, you know, yeah. so when you're open to being fed by all this, you find your uniqueness. You just need enough technique. Maybe that's the simplicity part to get your thing across. And you can get stuck if you get too much technique. Right. You get, you become sort of this kind of uh, uh, a noodler, a guy that can play really well, but the feeling's not there. You're right. over let, let, me, let, me, let me show you all my shit. Right. And when you listen to Willie Nelson take a solo, there is space. What a great guitar it's, player. It, it's phrasing, which is what Gary Shandling is talking about, which is what Ron Doss is talking about. The, 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 the quieter you become, the more you hear. There's truth in that space. Yeah. Is, is that the, like what was it? What was the, your you, you sort of riff a, a little bit about Gerd Chief. 
Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, there was this uh, kind of uh, iconic underground book, Meetings with Remarkable Men. Yeah, I, I tried to get into him, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't succeed. Yeah, it's difficult. And then there was a cult film made by Peter Brook. Terrence Stamp was the star. It was really eccentric, but interesting in that uh, all these men were searching, were musicians trying to play so well they catch God's ear. Oh. And I thought, oh, that's it. Meetings with remarkable musicians. I'll just right. use that. Right. Know? And uh, each chapter will be about uh, people who fed me. So Yeah, and it's like they're not all musicians, though. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what... You know the, what your relationship with with was with with uh, the poet Robert Bly, but he seemed to have a profound effect on you. What was that about? Well, I say remarkable musicians, Perrin and other artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he had a big effect on me, and I played drums while he read. You know, I think poetry. Well, I think writing is looking for music in between sentences, in a way, phrasing again, space. And poetry is like the skeleton of language. It's really intense to try and get it so concise, you know. And what kind of time did you spend with that guy? Because he sort of led a movement for a little while there. He, yeah, no, I was, uh, once again, same deal. I was in early. We were had these men's groups, and we were, you know, trying to break the mold of, of drinking beer and watching sports. We were, we were doing what women have done forever, talk to each other about feelings. Uh -huh. And uh, I remember Robert saying, you know, this ever becomes a movement, we're in trouble. Whoa, the <laughs> men's movement. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, he was just, we're just, we weren't dissing women. We were just trying to share our shit like that's done at AA meetings or whatever. Sure. And, yeah. And it was a really great thing, and it got so big. But I would say that it inspired the Million Man March and, and some good stuff. So It helped you, personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, what were your role models like as a kid? You know, what was your old man like? Oh, he was behind the newspaper. Oh, really, that uh, guy? Yeah, and my mom, yak, 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 all the time. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, Twice a year, my dad had put the paper down and say, Peggy, shut up. And then back to the. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but they were, you know, together 40 years and dedicated. And I tried to do that route real hard. Uh, it wasn't my cards. Yeah. And like when you look back, at, like in terms of the work you've done, you know, start like, let's just, well, start with the doors. So you like in the doors, what do you think was your sort of peak moment where you you almost got God's ear. Because, I mean, I listen to that. I love the fucking first live album. And, you know... Wow. Yeah. Oh. That, that thing. Like, you know, to me, like, you know, I listen to the studio records, but the one, you know, with one and five, and, you know, and, and I think the, uh, the end is on there as well, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that record is sort of like that. That was it. That fucking rocked hard for me. And it felt huh. like that you kind of got out there on that one. Huh? Well, we were still, you know, like people say, uh, what's the most exciting concert? Well, you know, the giant Madison Square Garden was mass adulation. And that was cool. Yeah. For what that is. Right. More exciting is the road up. Right. It's sort of like, wow. 
we're going to make a fucking living at this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of on that live record. We're still just, wow. Yeah, yeah. You know? But you're drumming, like, you know, since you didn't really have a bass to work, you know, to play off of. I mean, you had Ray's foot, but, like, the rhythm section was you. So, like, who, who were you taking your cues from, Jim? <laughs> no, uh, from myself. But, I mean, did you follow him? Like, when you're doing the end, and he's kind of riffing and going off and doing whatever the fuck he's doing, I mean, you were, you, you must have been in some symbiotic trip with that. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, on the end, I'm I'm having that conversation with him, like I saw Coltrane have with Elvin. Yeah. But um, a, a bass player, a separate bass player, and a drummer, they work to keep the groove. Yeah. And so it was just me and Ray's left hand, and so it, when he would get excited playing a solo, he'd speed up. It's like a whoa, we got to pull <laughs> the reins back. <laughs> but without a bass. There was more space, more room for me to improvise. You know, keep my job. The yeah. beat is my job. Yeah. Uh, to to play off everybody and push them and right dynamics is the whole deal. Yeah. For me, I'm not the fastest drummer, but once again, if you play <clears throat> pianissimo and fortissimo and everything in between, then you're getting a whole range of human emotions. And, right. And that's. That's where it is. You that's know? It. so yeah. So that that's the trick. Get it all. Get put it all into the thing. It's got yeah, all. Don't do it all. Don't do it all at one level. All that's why metal is kind of tough for me. I, I need some silence after that. You know. Yeah. Like the the up and down ride. Yeah, and you talk to uh, in the you also talk to Ravi Shankar, which is like to me, like you know, it's like, I mean, I have the same type of ability to. Like, not everybody can listen to jazz. Not everybody can listen to raga, you know? And, and like, I love it. I love listening to, to Shankar or any of the dudes that do the long-form Indian stuff. I, I, yeah. To me, it's like I can listen to that all day, and I find it completely compelling. What would you take away from that guy? Trance. Yeah. It's trance music. Yeah. You know? I, it's interesting how, okay, the Fab Four... And the Fab Doors yeah. <laughs> were simultaneous, simultaneously experimenting with then-legal LSD. And there's no internet here. And then somehow we get on to Maharishi. Well, I guess we were thinking, well, this is informative, but shattering on our nervous system. Yoga is a calmer route. So we get into that and, and we get into... That leads to Ravi Shankar and all of that. And yeah. so it's the same, you know, we had no communication with England much, but they were, uh, uh, sitar music was seeping into their right. stuff like us. Yeah. It's the Jungian un, uh, archetypal undercurrents or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, the collective unconscious. It was just at that time there was an integration. That's interesting. So it was sort of a movement from LSD to Maharishi, and then all of a sudden sitar music is everywhere. That that was the universal thread. Yeah, I think in that chapter I, I say that uh, it got so popular that they started using sitar music for porn flicks, and uh, Ravi <laughs> tried to stop them. But he couldn't. So the soundtrack of God became, became the soundtrack of sex. Well, you know, it, 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 yeah, it, it somehow or another. And so, to, you know, like, I remember, I think Michael Bloomfield 
in his you know desperation and late stage addiction was actually playing for some porn uh soundtracks oh shit well you know junkies will do anything won't they i guess so man you must have seen a lot of that happen throughout the years oh i mean i don't know if if he was a junkie but i mean addiction yeah no yeah he was yeah he was it was pretty i i think he just and that's that's just hearsay but you know did heroin did you feel the impact like you know when did heroin really start destroying the rock scene in la here's the deal yeah we're experimenting with then legal psychedelics and pot. Yeah. And yes, it were street scientists exploring yeah. our minds. Right. And then cocaine comes along. Right. Even Jim thought, wait a minute, what is that? That's like heroin. Isn't that some heavy shit? Right. And then that becomes cool. And, you know, we dabble. Uh, I'm already hyper, so I don't, it doesn't do it for me. I want right. to go the other way. Right. And then the culture goes on to heroin. Oh, my God. It's just like, no, really? Oh, God. And that's when people started uh, dropping. Alcohol, alcohol took Jim out pretty much. So Right. Old school. <laughs> the legal drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what was what was Janice like when you hung out with her? Oh, Janice was really great in the beginning, real innocent. And, and then, you know, it, sad road for Janice because... She could, you know, she had mass adulation and then went home alone and wasn't centered enough to got pretty lonely and took the spirit in the bottle, Mm. you know? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Or then the needle. Yeah. So, yeah. That's sad, huh? She was something else. It is. And, you know, Jim and Janice were a couple of those people who have, uh, Addic- uh, creativity and and survival in one packet, addiction and creativity in one bag. Yeah, you know, right. Some people don't. Right. Picasso, Picasso lived in ninety. Right. So, you know, it's just as time goes on, I'm more and more grateful for what Jim and Janice gave us, and it was really hard being around them. I can imagine. It's uh, it's sometimes it's hard for me to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, what about you? Tell me about uh, all those. I suppose, you what? Know, like, wh- who's some comedic mentors for you? Well, I think for me, like, you know, it, it became as time went on and I started to understand myself more about vulnerability, really. Uh, that, you know, there was something about, like, you know, Richard Pryor, you know, when yeah. he was able to, like, you, you yeah. know, there was a rawness to his truth. So how do you get under the joke, you know, into something that actually speaks to the human condition in a way that's uh, vulnerable and raw? Uh, That's what I mean. Yeah. By being so fed by, you know, Lenny Bruce and Richard and and Chappelle and whatever, they're just trying to get at the very roots of it all. Yeah. And I think Lenny, Lenny was sort of like heady and uh, you know, but, but also a, a great observer of, human foibles and and systemic foibles but you know but richard there was some sort of real kind of richard was fragile man and you know and and he couldn't hide it so he you know he wore his heart on his sleeve so you know and he brought that and he brought himself to 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 what he was doing in a way that i don't know that anyone's ever really done it before i mean anger's easy and being a clown is easy but you know really kind of being vulnerable in in humor is tricky you mean uh, talking about lighting yourself on fire? Yeah, man. 
right? Come on, Richard, light light yourself on fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, that took some balls, huh? To be a public, you know, to to make that kind of horrendous mistake. And, uh, you know, that horrible accident in the, in the midst of all that darkness and addiction and then get an hour and a half out of it. Good for him, man. Oh, geez. In your career, though, it seemed like after the doors, you kind of went on some different journey. I mean, I get like I it, there, there there is a certain amount of humility and, and egolessness and real creative uh, passion to to sort of pursue dance. I mean, what was that about? Well, I, I became a drummer for a dance company. OK. But what I realized, um, you know, it's not the goal of uh, the giant concert. It's it's the road there. Yeah. And so I'm, I've been doing uh, poetry and drumming, hand drumming. Yeah. In clubs and stuff uh, for years off and on. And man, if I have a good night and I feel that connection with the audience, I'm as high as Madison Square Garden. I mean, yeah. you know. There's something there's a um it's sort of like if if it's a forty piece orchestra or a duet, that's one person on stage. Mm. And the audience, you know, Madison Square Garden or a club, that's the other person. And the two of you are gonna dance tonight. Yeah. And the mystery and magic is how's it gonna go? Right. Is it gonna be a salsa, a waltz, a right. punk? I mean metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's what I'm missing so much now with the pandemic. Just seeing live music and the connection—it's re- it's really a big part of your life, huh? Well, uh, you know, I, I I became a writer ten, twenty years ago, and so I'm used to this sort of uh, monk-like thing. So I'm all right with it. Yeah. But I do miss the social. Yeah, human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, our tribe yeah when did you when did you first how old uh where was ram das and his wife when you when you had the experience with him well i was playing with his buddy krishna das the two of them went to india in the 60s yeah (laughs) gave the guru lsd and the guru said what else you got (laughs) (laughs) and they went this is our guy yeah and so i was playing uh, percussion with krishna das and um, the, the, and Ramdas came, and uh, I got to meet him. And then I got invited to his house. This was after he had the stroke, of course. Yeah. So uh, I had dinner with him, and uh, man, I gotta say the love vibe was palpable. Yeah. I don't want to get corny, but man, oh man, wow. Yeah. You know, to be dealt the card of a stroke where you you like Gary Snyder the spaces you know that's yeah. how he, right. but he translated that as okay the listener's getting more in that silence than even if i was blah blah blahing you know interesting that's a wow so, and he had a real love vibe and he was in a wheelchair and it wasn't pretty well that was sort of him like i mean you know that his sort of process around you know, you know, sort of moving towards death and mortality and kind of uh, making a, 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 a sort of accepting mortality is his trip. Right. So yeah, he yeah. so like I, I guess, that you know, when you have a stroke, like I just talked to Michael J. Fox the other day 
because he's got oh. a, I've, he's got a book out, and it, oh. it seems to me that the people that accept and you know build a relationship with their sickness or with their 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 liabilities, the people that befriend it and accept that this is going to be their partner. Uh, from here on out, for one way or another, are the people that are able to sort of stay in a, a light uh, when it yeah. comes to life, you know? And that's a teaching for us. Right. Because, you know, we're, uh, you know, maybe our, our road is not as dramatic, but we got to yield. This aging makes you yield. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes. But... Uh, as George Harrison wrote, uh, some you know he knew he had cancer. Some days are quite sublime. Yeah. So, so. Yeah, and that's right, and that's in the midst of all this chaos and, and horror that we're dealing with now. When I'm out here right. sitting on my porch, this is the life right here, right now. You know, everything that's outside of me and everything I know that's going on that's horrible is not here right now. I'm having nice. a, I'm having a nice day. And no disrespect, uh, you know, and hopefully you and I don't get the virus. Yes. But uh, the earth, our footprint on the earth is lighter. And that's a, that's something to think about. Oh, you mean with everything stalled? Yeah, with everything stalled. I thought, yeah, I um, thought about that. Yeah, we're giving the earth a rest as we're all taking the hit. But I mean, I guess maybe we had it coming. What uh, I talked to Patty Smith a couple of weeks ago, and she's lovely. You have a you had a nice time with her. Oh, oh, oh! God. She's the best, right? I mean, you know, she jump starts the whole punk thing. Yeah. Then she crosses over and writes a National Book Award book. Oh my God! You she's know, great. I'm a writer. Yeah. Wow, what a Renaissance woman, you know, and humble and. Uh, she's a real deal and, 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 and you said I listened to a little of the interview that be- she's part of that lineage that beautiful thread from yeah. Beatnik Beatnik Burroughs and right. Ginsburg her. it's sort of like the the hippies are on the shoulders of the beats right uh, the punks are on the shoulders of the hippies mm. the, the grunge is on the shoulders of the punks mm. And so it goes, you know, yeah. we're all kind of learning from each other. And now let's talk a little bit about like um, in terms of like how you felt about how the Doors music was going to be used or allowed to use. What was your source of of angst about that? <clears throat> well, Mark, uh, <clears throat> it goes like this. Um, we are solicited to do. Come on, Buick, light my fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And we're kind of considering it. Jim's out of town. And he comes back and says, good idea. Good idea. And I got to, you know, for a commercial, I'll go on television and I'll smash the car with a sledgehammer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's a no. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, wow, he didn't write that song. He wrote one line. Our love become a funeral pyre, of course, Morrison esque, right? Yeah. Uh, Who wrote that Robbie. song? Uh, Robbie wrote that song. Right. Robbie Krieger. And so, whoa, Jim cares about the whole catalog, all, everything we're doing here. So, how can I break on through to a new deodorant? Right, right. Or 
uh, love me two times because I just took Viagra. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. But uh, shh. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I've been Mr. Vito, got a lot of shit for it, uh, and now people have come around more. So. So it's basically protecting the legacy and, and honoring what you thought Jim's vision was and what you thought yeah, the creative yeah. vision of the band was, and you stuck by it because you didn't want to fucking sell it out. To the point of suing my bandmates. Oh my god. Yeah. <gasps> That was so painful. I couldn't believe I did it. But because what, what, <laughs> what they were just seeing an easy payday, right? On some level? Yeah. 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 But you, uh, I mean, they must have been doing okay. It's not like the doors. Yeah. You, uh, well, that, that's what my question was. Okay. Well, I know it was hard. It was kind of like the Chappelle. What, what did he turn down? 50, 60 million right, or some right. shit? All right. So it got up to 15 million for break on through to a, a Cadillac gas, right. gas guzzling, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. mind you, after managers and splitting it all up, it'd only be a few million each. <laughs> but still, yeah. I said to uh, Ray and Robbie, okay, um, we all have a nice house and kind of a couple groovy cars. What are you going to buy? What do you need? Yeah. Dot, dot. There was that space. Oh, dot, yeah. dot, dot. Yeah. The truth came in. There was uh, no answer. And I was like, so? Yeah. I'm going to veto. Right. And, and, and let me say this too, Mark. Important. Uh, this was way back. Yeah. And things got so hard. If a new band wanted to do a commercial to pay the rent, yeah. I get that. Sure. No. Yeah. But then again, if you get a toehold on success maybe re-examine that decision and don't do it anymore. But in our case... Well, it was like, you know, the guy, you know, yeah, it would be on the grave of, of Jim Morrison, and these were iconic songs. It's one thing, you know, if you need to make ends meet and you do a commercial with yeah. a tune that, you know, maybe no one's even heard before, or you want to sell a jingle, you know, but it's different where they're like, this song represented something. It, it was a big shift in thinking, like, even with, like... Um, like I, I, some for some people, it kind of like they used Iggy Pop "Search and Destroy," I think, for a Nike commercial. And I talked to the dude, uh, a, a music manager. He said that the guy who 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 used that song for that or got permission to use it didn't even know who Iggy was. He saw the title uh, on a, he saw the title uh, on a list of songs, and uh, then checked it out. But but oddly. You know, for Iggy, you know, it kind of like it, it, it kind of reinvigorated his career and he probably needed the bread because he doesn't have yeah, a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. When, when, when Nike backed up Colin Kaepernick, I I'm not a I don't wear sports gear. Yeah. But I went to Nike and bought a T-shirt, you know, <laughs> know that's cool. <laughs> but um, uh, Pete Townsend, I quote in my second book, The Unhinged. Yeah. The other point of view. Yeah, I say, oh, you know, people were in Vietnam getting fed by our songs or fell in love or first time they got high. We can't change the soundtrack to their life. And Pete Townsend says, I don't give a fuck if you fell in love with Shirley to my song. It's my song. I'll do what I want. Right, man. Right, man. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, yeah. It's like William Burroughs said to Patti Smith, you got to keep your name clean. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But, yeah. uh, now, did you guys, did did everybody end on a good note? Like when Ray passed, were you okay? And we were strained. And I I sent them the last chapter of the second book. 
with a note saying, listen, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. I want to make sure you got to this chapter. I say in here, how could I not love you guys? We, we, we created magic in a garage. And um, then when I heard Ray was getting really sick, I called him and thank God he picked the phone up. Nobody does that. Yeah. And, and we talked about his cancer and, and, and none of the legal shit, which was over. I won. But um, it felt good to hear his voice, you know? Yeah, I bet. It was, it was a closure. And I, I feel Jim and him even deeper now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You I can talk to him. Sure. What the fuck? Yeah, of course. You, do you think about Jim uh, regularly? Uh, I have dreams about him occasionally. Oh, yeah? I remember he told us this dream he had. Um, we're playing a big concert, and he goes back to the hotel room, and he's walking down the hall, and he hears a bunch of voices in his room. Yeah. And he looks at the key, and that's the right room, and he opens the door and there's a whole bunch of people in there partying and they look at him like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and that was the dream. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Pretty interesting. Huh? What did you dream about him? Uh, oh, I dreamt that uh, he was back. Yeah. He was clean and sober. He was in a, like an Armani suit. Wow. And he wanted to, and he wanted to play. <laughs> play music. Like, he, he was ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like so, when you have is the time you guys had, you know, for the, the amount of time you had it, I, I, get, I guess it's hard. Like those memories must be pretty amazing. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, you don't have a life after that, which you obviously do, but you, you, the bond you create with guys that, like you said, you make magic that lasts forever. You uh, must be really something. Well, I've had several marriages, Mark, but this one, <laughs> yeah. this one's gone on my whole life. Yeah. I think I was on uh, Charlie Rose. Remember him? Yeah. And uh, he liked this line. I said, uh, being in a band is polygamy without sex. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys are in it. Yeah. And how do you talk to Robbie? Occasionally. Yeah. You know, How's he doing? Is he all right? He played after the the legal hassle, we finally played some music together at the at the county museum, and it felt really sweet. Immediately, it was like we were back. Really, you guys, yeah. it's so distinct. It's so wild that you could just pick up after so many years, and and you you lock right into it, right? Yeah, because you it's so in your blood. That's you know, like, it's amazing to you me. Can remember those songs, and I mean Gustavo Dudamel conducts without a manuscript yeah beethoven all those symphonies are just in his friggin head wow. how do you do that it's crazy you know? yeah well i saw it like i just like i had the moment where i was watching that uh, above us only sky which was a documentary about you know john lennon and the making of imagine that you know the family had all this footage it'd been around forever because i talked yeah, to I, think... I, I talked to sean lennon about it and he said yeah he knew that footage because they had it you know, they they oversaw the the putting together of that documentary. But there's a moment where, you know, John's out at that mansion and they're recording Imagine. And, you know, he has George come out to play on a few songs. Right. And there's just a moment that they capture on camera where John's you know, on the piano and George is sitting there holding a guitar. And John just looks at George and and and, you know, looks at him with that face like, you know, we understand each other on a level that. 
you know, no one else can even understand. And George immediately got it without anything being said and knew exactly what to do. And I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. Well, I mean, you know, if you work together a long time, um, it's kind of like a private club. Right. But, you know, with with much gratitude for all the fans. And, but, I th- and, but, I, and I also think that a lot of people don't realize how many dates you guys fucking did. I mean, it's like you got these records, but you guys were on the road a lot, right? Yeah. that w- For six years straight, we were at it. You know. I mean, that's so many shows, so much places, so many. I mean, like, I always forget that, like people like Hendrix and you guys. It's like we hear the records. We hear the live record or two. But you guys did hundreds of dates, hundreds of dates. So it becomes intuitive. Right. You just you go in that space. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's it. And it, and it, and then all of a sudden you're in it. It must be just a, a elating most but, of the time. But you want to make it fresh, too. Yeah, yeah. Like man. like in comedy, you, you know, just the phrasing of a joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or or it flops and then something happens that is hysterical. Right. Leave a little yeah. room, a little space. That's improvisation. Yeah, which man. Which is jazz and that's the uh, that's the best. My chapter on Ray's called improvisation, so it's all connected. Sure, man, and it's like, and that's those are the sometimes the best moments is that one, you know, that yeah. you know that few minutes you got out of it where it's like, oh my god. You know, um, getting older, I don't have as much uh, technique drumming wise, but I think I've learned that if you put the right cymbal crash in the right spot, yeah. It's as powerful as these big flurries I did in my 20s. Oh, yeah. You know, same in comedy, I'm sure. This is sure. right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's adjusting. Boom. It's evolving your timing. There's something more satisfying to that than, you know, than just the flurry. I mean, if you can, yeah, fucking, yeah, yeah. If you can nail it with one beat, you're like, whoa. You know what I mean? Yielding. Yielding. Yeah, man. Yielding. Where'd you get that word? I got that from a cover of... Uh, a Pearl Jam album ah. called Yield. Oh yeah, and, and and the bass player took the photograph of a yield sign. Right. Now nah, nah, that's pretty hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you like those guys? Oh, Eddie sang with us when we were inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. Yeah. I love that guy. Great singer, huh? Oh my God, those pipes from that little guy. Crazy. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Well, hey, man, it was good talking to you, and I love the book, and I wish you the best of uh, success with it. And you seem healthy, so you'll be around a while. Yeah, really great connection. Yeah, really man, fun. it was fun. Take care of yourself. Same with you, man. Okay, buddy. Adios. That was John Densmore, old groovy guy, still groovy, still doing the thing, still being that guy from the old days. Uh, the book is called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists. Here we go. Let's play some uh, Stratocaster. Straight in with the uh, built-in tremolo and echo on the vibroverb. <laughs> Thank you. 
Baron Monkey and LaFonda live on.